Welcome to part two of our recent panel discussion held by the Monash Migration and Inclusion Centre as part of National Unity Week titled Racism It Stops With. Our guest experts are Nidal Nguyen, lawyer and human rights advocate, Professor Jacinta Elston, Pro Vice Chancellor Indigenous from Monash University, Div Palay, CEO of Mind Tribes, and Emeritus Professor Andrew Marcus, also from Monash University. In this episode, we explore some of the solutions around how we can all work together in fighting prejudice in our society. And we even snuck in a couple of questions from our audience members. Let's go back to the panel for part two of the discussion. I've got another question for all of you again, and I'm going to start with you, Andrew. Do you think there is anything that individuals at home can do to help tackle structural racism? You know, I, I think all we can do is what we can do. Something that seems right for us, that's all we can do. And we should all be doing it. I mean, you know, what we've heard from Nidal is, is her horrendous experience of, you know, colour prejudice and racism and that you keep coming up against it. And, and I just admire, you know, the, the courage and the leadership, you know, that you bring because I I well understand or think that I well understand, you know, how difficult it is. It's much easier basically to shut the door and, and withdraw uh, from these horrendous experiences. So I think, you know, for us, anything that's within our power, we should be doing that. And, it, and if that's you come across a racist incident, and, of course, that's, that's difficult because you don't want to get into a violent situation. But I think, you know, that people need to understand what it is that they can do, what it is that they can safely do uh, and, and do it. Jacinta, is there anything the individual can do to challenge systemic racism? One of the things that everybody watching tonight could do is tonight um, make contact with your federal and state MPs. Um, if you're emailing your federal MPs office, you would say, I support statement, uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I support an anti-racism agenda in Australia. Yeah. If you were contacting your state MP and you were here in Victoria, you would say, I support a bipartisan approach to the treaty, to the Europe Commission and an anti-racism approach in Victoria. Yeah. You know, I think that we don't use our voting voices enough. When we come up to an election, we don't hear these race issues on the table mm. um, by our politicians. Um, and often because it's just too difficult for them to get into it. They're not hearing the public who vote say to them, this is work we want you to do. It is hard work, but we want you to tackle it. Um, so I think that's one of the things that we can do. We could let our public, our public servants, our, our um, members of parliament, state and federal, know that we support an agenda which will take us to a different place. Mm -hmm. And that takes us to a place where we can focus on the human and the non-human of our country. Because, of course, this is also about the way that we can impact on the other big issues like climate change, um, like relationships to for Indigenous people to country um, and it has a much bigger impact for us I think in the potential for the way that we will become um, a more cohesive and loving society in the future and I'm not saying we're not cohesive and we're not loving now there's a large part of us it is mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of ability for us to overlook the stuff that we don't see outside our back door mm. um, or outside our front door when we go out so. Mm. Div. Um, I'm going to sort of address this from a workplace and leadership 
context. So uh, we're doing some work currently. Um, we swept global research on tackling racism. Uh, so we've looked at Canada, the UK, the US, uh, South Africa, etc. Uh, and what we find is that there is um, structural racism in the systems at work. And if you're a leader in an organization or an employee, I'd urge you to look at um, how this is baked into uh, racial equality right from recruitment, onboarding, selection, advancement and promotion. There's a high correlation of reduction of racism when there's representation. Yeah. Um, so when we get uh, First Nations people in leadership positions, people of color in leadership positions, it starts to change the dynamic uh, in teams um, and decision making is a lot more uh, equal uh, and because there's lived experience and voices are heard and it's visible. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd urge you to look at your systems in your workplace across the employee experience to look for structural racism that's baked in. I'd also urge you to look at um, your um, support for people who might experience racism. Um, go and audit your employee assistance programs or all of the wellness programs that are there. We've interviewed a number of women of color um, across the public and private sectors who say that when they first pick up the phone to say, I've experienced uh, a microaggression or um, you know, some sort of incident with a leader, uh, the, the person on the other end is likely a white psychologist who doesn't have a la the language of racism at all at their disposal, so it's a capability issue. Um, but the first thing that we've heard is, is almost tantamount to gaslighting. They're asking these women, um, you know, are you sure that this happened the way it happened? Who else was there? Do you have a record of any bystanders who witnessed and might give testimony to this incident? And what we're finding is that um, women of color who experience racism are going into retreat mode. They're going, why bother? Yeah. Why bother even raising it? Um, and for me, that's structural racism right there because there's no help even when it's touted as call your EAP assistance and you know you can get some support there. That's not working. Um, and then when you look at, you know, how leaders actually have a conversation on race, that's not working. So I do find that there are inhibitors in the workplace that are pretty structural. Um, and I'd call on every leader who's listening to actually look at their sphere of influence. Um, you have a duty of care, a positive duty of care to your employees because racism is harm. Mm. There's a mental health impact. Um, our country records, it's a study by Deakin University, records 3.6% on our GDP for the cost of dealing with racism. And that's because of all the trauma, mental health impact, loss of confidence, loss of voice, and sometimes even loss of employment mm. uh, due to racism occurring in the workplace. So I'd say that you have a positive duty of care um, to people that you lead and support. And it means that you need to interrogate the systems at work to make sure there's no inbuilt structural racism. Nidal, tell us what you think about whether an individual can actually do anything to really effectively tackle institutional or systemic racism. Yeah, I think, I think institutional racism changes because people force it to change. Um, good example is the, uh, the marriage equality um, a campaign that, that took Australian to uh, literally change our political institutions um, to reflect the desires of the people. So I think that comments on the importance of personal relationships um, and building those personal relationships. 
I also want to say that um, I think I'm just thinking about the way to, to, to phrase it because I don't want to come out as if I'm excusing people who engage in, in racist behavior. Um, I, I think what, if I could put a message out there, it's that when people talk about racism or the impact on racism on them, it is not an accusation or a damnation of the person or you know the people that necessarily engage in that um, conversation. So for example, if I speak about my experiences of racism or my experiences of my, my family experiences of racism, it is not a complete condemnation of Australia as a society because that would be, at least in my experience, wrong. There are other aspects of my life that have clearly been benefited and enhanced by the fact of being in Australia. So what are we doing, I think, when we speak about that or where do I come from? I come from a place that thinks that this is a country in which my children have been born. And I want them to be able to live in an equal, fair society. And so my engagement in this conversation is how do I make space for that equality? It is about how do we better our country so that we are constantly making progress towards the kind of ideas and goals and aspirations that we claim we are. You know, the idea of being an anglitarian society, the idea of giving people a fair go. These are things that are good in themselves. And the question is, how do we expand them so that they are ever evolving to encompass more and more people? So I think that's the point. The other is, what do we do as people who experience racism? I think there's always a, a room for grace. Um, to give other people the opportunity to learn from their mistakes and to be better themselves, I think. I think that um, I've seen incidents online where when someone conduct, you know, say something racist or even say something mistakenly racist, the reaction to it leaves no room for any sort of redemption. And I think that's, that's impossible. <laughs> we are all human beings and we are going to muck up at some point and we should give people the opportunity for that and and of course it doesn't mean that it's a blanket forever tick it's a matter of seeing whether in fact after that incident their behavior changed and if their behavior do change i think our response to them should the final part is to understand how the very structural issues in our society impacts us all even though we might blame different things i think high casualizations, globalization, you know, has shifted a large group of people from the stability that used to exist. And I think that instability, um, people name that fear of instability as the other. And so I think as much as dealing with the racism, we should still be campaigning uh, around other social and economic issues that makes the issue of racism far more difficult, which actually then says to me that all of us have a role to play. You know, if you are a lawyer, if you are a doctor, if you are an environmentalist, all of us have a role to play. All right, let's end on some hope. I want to ask 
every member of the panellists now to share with us one initiative that either you are part of or that um, you know of that gives you hope about the future of tackling racism. Jacinta, I'll start with you. Uh, look, I would speak to um, Monash University's recent strategic plan that we've just launched, uh, the Vice-Chancellor and our Council, uh, a 10-year um, strategic plan which up front makes not just the recognition of Aboriginal people here in the Kulin Nations as traditional owners but actually calls for and says that they support the Uluru Statement from the Heart mm -hmm. um, and a voice to Parliament, as well as the treaty uh, here in Victoria and the Europe Commission. And I think to see a very large, you know, company do that is a very big um, commitment to, to be made. And I think, you know, in the context of reconciliation action plans and what other organisations can do, making that type of public commitment and then starting to do the work in-house to, to, to make that real, um, I, I think that's a fantastic thing. And um, from my point of view, to see Monash go into the next decade with that type of commitment up front um, in their, um, you know, in the um, Monash uh, impact strategic plan for the next decade, um, I'm just really hopeful about that and, and really inspired and I think that's going to help us shift and change the agenda. Um, and as I said, I've got lots of great colleagues at, at Monash who are already on board with us, but I think this is just going to help take us that step further as an organisation. Div, mm. what's giving you hope? What's giving me hope, especially in the workplace, are a lot of um, staff-led networks and employee resource groups that are women of colour networks or um, CALD, so culturally and linguistically diverse networks. So they're groups of passionate volunteers, all employees, who are sponsored by a, a senior advocate. So either a C-suite leader or an executive leader who's likely white, male or female, who is really leading the charge on tackling racism in the workplace. Now, that gives me hope because um, it's not people of colour leading the charge. It's actually the senior sponsor. Mm. And they're opening up the dialogue to influence their peers. Mm. Uh, now, that makes me feel hopeful because there's change uh, happening. And we saw a massive spike um, you know, when George Floyd died in, in May last year and the Black Lives Matters movement caused this surge mm. of racial dialogue. It, it's, it signalled a movement in the workplace for sure because that conversation came into the workplace and so too these grassroots movements start, start up. And I think it makes people of colour visible, it makes them vocal, um, it leads the change roadmap from a white ally perspective mm. and that's good. Um, and it's influencing those other leaders who may not be on board yet uh, and it's creating safety in the conversation. So it doesn't feel like an us and them, yep. it feels like a together moving mm -hmm. forward, which is really, really hopeful. And it's also not the people of colour who are having to do the heavy lifting, lifting for once. Yeah, yeah. that mm -hmm. gives me a little bit of a reprieve, I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> Naya Doll, what's giving you hope? What initiatives in tackling racism, either that you're part of or that you know are happening, that give you hope for the future? I'm going to give a really cliche answer, which sounds very political, um, but I, I believe in people. <laughs> Um, because um, with, with the kind of um, sort of advocacy that I've done online, I've had people from all various backgrounds approach me in public. Um, so I initially, I thought that my message was going to black and brown kids or predominantly, you know, black, black kids. But um, yeah, I have been very, very surprised by just the diversity of people that have come, you know, old, you know, 
I, I once had a, a you know a Lebanese you know security guide stop me and talk to me about the work I've had, you know um, you know all white men write to me to say it, it, it you know that they support the work of racism I've had, you know young you know white boys from uh, privileged schools or private schools attend rally for refugees so, you know I think that there is still um, uh, a lot of a lot of good and then and that we should continue to appeal to those people to join us. Andrew Marcus, what is giving you hope for the future in tackling racism? Yeah, like a cliched response would be young people. And, and young people are, are really very special. Um, like say in my community, in the Jewish community, there's an organisation called Stand Up. Um, and they work with a whole range of programs, um, including African communities, Indigenous communities. So that is very inspiring. But there's actually more than that because um, we can look at some of the elders in our community and, and a very significant Indigenous leader, Uncle William Cooper, um, has inspired uh, so many people in the Jewish community because Uncle William led a, a protest during Kristallnacht at the Nazi policies of persecution. Uh, and so a number of people in their 70s and their 80s um, are now campaigning to make the uh, Uluru Statement from the Heart well-known and organising a, a participation and demonstration. So, you know, I see positives across the community. All right, let's go to questions from the audience now. And this first one that I'm going to ask is uh, addressed to everyone. So perhaps if it's just whoever wants to answer can. If you don't want to answer, you don't have to. Uh, I'll be nice to you at this time of night. So the question is, Professor Marcus stated that evidence suggests racism is stable or reducing. Can the panel reflect on why these reductions aren't more significant given the clear economic and social benefits that immigration and diversity bring to our society? Would anyone here on the panel like to kick off on that? I wonder whether the positive um, sort of reaction is more from the fact that we're living through a pandemic and that social cohesion has come because communities have an overarching problem to solve. Like we just need to move together. We have a common enemy in yeah, the virus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a common enemy and, you know, we did see some divisiveness with the Mel Melbourne lockdown towers and Asian hate and all yeah. that as well. Um, but I do think that, um, I, I think there's this, I've, I've listened to the news this morning and there was a lot of uh, positive rhetoric around the economic benefits of migration because I think Australia will feel the pain of the slow, slow migration or halting of migration with our borders closed for two years. Um, and we're going to suffer that from an economic perspective. Mm. And because we're going to suffer that, mm. I think I've always seen Australia... Um, especially leaders, leaders and the business uh, leaders react when there's a bit of pain to their pocket. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that might be a very pessimistic view of the world, but I do think they'll act to include more, um, you know, programs to include migrants because our aged care, our residential care, our hospitality industries, um, the slowness of uh, international students will only come back maybe if, if possible next year sometime. Um, so all of that, our jobs are at a loss. You know, there's this fruit on the trees and farms and yeah. rural lands and are not being picked. And there's such a, there's suddenly an appreciation for that diversity mm -hmm. in our country when our borders were shut and this is the impact of it. So I do think that we might might see, I'm hopeful that we might see a, 
a positive narrative come out of it, that mm. there's an appreciation and inclusion of people from different countries coming in. Um, so I, I don't know, but I do think the social cohesion bit is about the pandemic predominantly. Mm. Uh, I, I think that part of the problem is in the way we, um, we talk about migrants, uh, we don't talk about them as part of our society. You know, we, we therefore quantify the benefits of, of migrants by what they're able to give us, not what necessarily we're able to give them. Well, so I think as a result, even though Australia is going to need more migrants to, you know, um, sustain certain industry, our, our political conversations around them haven't improved. You know, if you just have an economic discussions about human beings, it doesn't translate necessarily to to the um, to the human interaction. So, you know, if if I see a migrant worker as someone who is coming here to do the jobs that I don't want, it still doesn't address the attitudes um, that either impact racial therapy or or others. So, I think that you know, and, and that which worries me because I think that the more we're gonna need migrants uh, to come to Australia, the more it actually can exacerbate racial tensions um, if, if the political conversation is only, um, um, only confined to the economic um, debate, not to mention as well that even within that economic debate, it's not safe because if uh, migrants are either seen as taking our jobs or in other words, if they're not taking our jobs, uh, they're reducing um, the, uh, the the protections or that we have in employment because employers are willing to give them less protection, less money, um, because they are probably more desperate, and that brings everyone conditions down as a result. So even even if you define it as an economic uh, conversation, it doesn't still address some of the economic anxieties that might uh, arise in the future. Thank you, and thank you for your contribution tonight, Naya Dole. Jacinta, did you have it out on this question so of... Can I interject on yeah. that just to respond? Yeah. And just to make clear to the audience that this is why I said it's pessimistic, because I do think that it's a very transactional response mm. to the inclusion of migrants, that there is an economic argument at the moment, and I agree with Nidal that there won't be that level of valuing and respect and reduction of racism. There likely will be more. Mm. Um, so that's my concern as well. I just didn't want the audience to think that that's where my head was at. But I do think there'll be an appreciation for the fact that, oh my gosh, in two years, this is what ha was happened to our industries and our business. Um, so I think there's absolutely a call to action for business to look at exploitation, especially work exploitation uh, under you know, payment uh, and, and marginalization of people um, who then can, can never actually achieve equality in society because they're underpaid, overworked, living in poor conditions, can't educate their, their children in the way they would like, uh, and often their living conditions are worse off um, from their home countries. So I just want to say that, that that for me is just absolutely a no-no. I hope that we, we, can, we have an opportunity now to rewrite some of the wrongs that we've done with um, previous migration intakes and treat people with fairness and equity as they come in. All right, Jacinta. Oh, look, I, I think um, all of the comments so far have been just um, very helpful for thinking about this in the context. Some of the things that have worried me is 
um, what's happened to our immigration centres over the last, you know, 18 months while we've been in this COVID space? Have we improved that at all? We certainly learnt nothing about the way that we treated Aboriginal people in terms of reserves and missions and the way that you segregate people. And I think that if we're going to um, do this well, we've got to, again, put the human at the centre of it. What does it mean for, the, for an individual who's coming into this country in terms of a new life, a new opportunity? Um, of course, we've all, um, many of us have heard Stan Grant um, um, speech on, on the lucky, lucky country um, and people are coming to Australia for something different for them and for their families, are we giving them that or are we just, as you say, having this transactional relationship because they're going to come for us to do something for us? We've all seen, you know, the, the story of um, the migrant who has come in with great qualifications from their own country only to not be able to get qualified here. And I know our, um, our accreditation professional bodies have all got programs in place to try to get them across, but actually do we make it? harder than it needs to be for somebody to get registered to practice in Australia for yeah. the profession that they are. Um, so I think we've got to really rethink again the systems that bring our migrants in um, and then how do we transition people to actually belong to our country, mm. um, not always be on the outer. And I think, you know, this is a country made of migrants. Well, since 1788, everybody's migrated here. Um, and how do we change this notion that we're not predominantly this white um, Anglo-Saxon country. We are a multicultural society. So how do we start to actually walk into that space in a way that values everybody? Um, and again, for me, I often thought, where do we put Indigenous people at the centre of that in the context of welcoming people to country? Mm. How do you welcome people to country and have Australia Day ceremonies that welcome people on Australia Day when you've got Aboriginal population, including our esteemed elder, um, the late Uncle William Cooper, who was calling it a day of mourning. Mm. And yet that's the day that we're going to welcome people to our country. Mm. Um, and Aboriginal people aren't there at the centre of welcoming them to country if it's on a day of mourning. So mm. there's some of the things that I think fundamentally we have to change the way we view um, that. It's, it's, it's about who we become as a society. Mm. Andrew, how do you understand it? You know, given there are such good justifications for us, if nothing else, such selfish justifications for us to want a multicultural society, economically, all these other reasons, we know that it's good. Why, why can we not open our hand to this? Yeah. Well, I mean, don't we? And um, I, I don't necessarily uh, assume that. I mean, for me, it's an idea of trying to get our head around numbers. There are, is a proportion of Australian society that is intolerant of diversity, doesn't want to have change as they understand it, actually do want change, but change in their direction, yep. So there's that proportion. And then there's a proportion of the population who embraces and welcomes diversity and multiculturalism and, and wants to address issues. And if we can get our heads around the relative numbers, which is what I've tried to do in more than 15 years of surveying, and I'd say that if we kind of put some numbers around it, five to 10% in one camp, which is the intolerant camp, three or four times that proportion who welcome diversity. So it's the amount of noise and media that different groups are able to generate and to define Australian society. And they're not gonna define me mm. and they shouldn't define us. For me, it's important to understand who they are, what they represent, and the influence they're able to wield. Um, 
and also to understand that there's a lot of people in the middle who don't quite know which way to go. Mm -hmm. and, and part of the conversation has to be um, is to recognise their fears, hopes, aspirations and to bring them with us rather than create an environment uh, where they feel alienated because they're being challenged and they're being made to fear. And I think those points have been made. Mm. All right, how about we have time for one last question? This one says, some argue that there is a high level of ethnic and religious segregation in Australian schools. Do you think that this is true and that it contributes to racism in Australia? And if so, how do you think this problem could be resolved? Anyone want to take that? Um, it's been a long time since I've been in school um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I can't really sort of speak to it from that point of view, I guess. But, um, I mean, again, I think this is about what sort of a tolerant society we are and, and how engaging is there space for everything. Mm -hmm. Does one thing mean that you can't also have the other? Um, you know, if we're talking about tolerance in this context, um, doesn't everybody deserve the right? And I think um, the comment before about having grace and demonstrating grace is really important. I think sometimes we think it has to be one or the other. Mm. Um, and I know that in many of these conversations, you know, people do need to be able to stand on whatever side of the fence that they're at or, um, you know, send their kids to whatever school that they send them to and be able to have that um, conversation that allows that freedom to be raising your kids in the way that you want to but not have that take away from anybody else uh, and also to not sort of attack others for it. I mean, we see this conversation constantly in the context of being a society that celebrates an end of a year with a place that, in a place where you've got people who are celebrating um, Hanukkah, um, you know, Christian Christmas, yeah. uh, even if they don't believe in God, but they believe in the presence. Um, <laughs> you know, like we, we're already doing that. We're already embracing it. And so you'll hear people talk about end of year celebrations in schools and mm. getting rid of this parade and that parade and doing things. And we seem to be so challenged about it. We haven't found mm. a way to just allow ourselves to have some grace and say it's okay if it all coexists because that is part of us actually having to um, deal with the complexities of this and being able to have a new temple that's built in the middle of your small regional town that confronts you, that's okay. Um, and it doesn't mean that people are sitting in there plotting something against the rest of the town. It, and so I think that there is this notion, and I, I really do appreciate that she said it before, of having grace with each other. Mm. Um, and that means that we've got to also be able to do that in our, in our institutions and in our places. But to not do it in a way that sets us up for somebody to purposely be attacked, to mm. purposely be um, isolated or alienated. Um, and that's where people need to be protected. But we do need to be able to allow us as a society to move forward in a way that embraces everything. Mm. Um, I think if we don't embrace everything, then we're always going to be stuck in that place um, of people feeling alienated from one, one area to another in our society. I think that is a beautiful place to finish, a lovely uh, sentiment to end on, and we are also out of time. So I'd like to say, and, you know, you're at home, put the ice cream down and can I ask that you, while you're on mute, to please give a very, very big thank you to our amazing panellists, Prof Emeritus Professor Andrew Marcus, Div Palais, Professor Jacinta Elson and Nyadel Nguyen. 
You are spectacular. Thank you so much. And a big thanks also to the Lebanese Muslim Association in partnership with National Unity Week for helping us to put this event on. Thank you for joining us. I hope, I'm sure you've learned something. I hope you feel you can take away something practical. Um, if nothing else, I think we can all feel hopeful. I think, hopeful at the end of this. So thank you very much and good night. And that's it for season five of What Happens Next. A big thanks to all our guests on this series and of course, a big thanks to you, the listener. Don't forget to give us a five-star review and stay tuned for our next season of What Happens Next.